Hey, what's going on? This is Dr. Mike T. Nelson here with the Eat to Perform podcast, and I'm here also with the usual co-host there. Say hi, Dr. Brad. Hey, everyone. This is uh, Dr. Brad Dieter here, and uh, we have a great show for you guys today. It's going to be a lot of great information, so we're excited to have this guest on. Yes, it'll be very good. It's uh, The topic is related to hydration and more issues related to females. Uh, we've gotten a lot of questions lately from uh, females in general, and our guest here, uh, Jeff Rothschild, has got lots of amazing information uh, related to that. So say hi, Jeff. Hello. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, it was very nice. I followed your stuff for quite a while, and we got to meet up when I was out in Los Angeles recently and took us, uh, my wife and I out to some very wonderful restaurants, and we had great food and uber geeky talk and it was lots of fun <laughs> i'm sad i missed it sounds like a an awesome trip mike yeah it was it was very good it was a very good trip and uh jeff knows all the great places to stay and eat near the, the west hollywood area so it worked out perfect awesome yeah. you want to give us a background jeff on just for people who may not have heard you yet sure yeah uh, i'm a registered dietitian i did my master's degree in nutritional science um, I also teach a uh, college sports nutrition class, but uh, most of my time is spent working with people in a private practice setting, so I'm working with people individually. Um, the people I work with is, is actually a pretty wide range, so sedentary non-athletes, uh, recreational athletes, all the way up to some professional athletes. I work with a number of professional tennis players and also um, some, some high level and a few professional uh, endurance athletes, so triathletes and cyclists. Very cool. And I know when I was out there, I got to see your, your setup there, and you've got the nice metabolic cards and all the cool toys, so you definitely believe in having data, too, which is very awesome. Yeah, it's helpful, and it gives us, uh, you know, with, with so many things, there's there's kind of ranges, or so many recommendations, let's just say carbs, for example. I mean, there's so much, there's such a wide range, like the, you know, 30 to 90 grams an hour or something like that, which is just like a, a huge variation in, in what's appropriate for a, a, a a person or, or a, you know, a, a certain setting. So being able to test some of this stuff, it gets us a little bit closer than just, just guessing. Nice. Yeah. Cause I mean, those kind of ranges, if you were to put somebody in a six hour event, you know, that's the difference between 180 grams of carbs and 540. <laughs> yeah. And that's, yeah, it's a joke. That's yeah. It's like, why even make a recommendation <laughs> when it's so wide like that? If you're eating bananas. It's a lot of bananas, man. <laughs> <laughs> so related to, hydration what would you say are some some common myths that just don't seem to go away my, my buddy lou Schuler calls them the, the zombie myths in nutrition <laughs> where you they keep trying to kill them but they, they keep showing up all the time what would be <laughs> some of those related to hydration yeah so i guess i'll speak um uh, uh i guess my, my experience like i said mostly is is in tennis uh both as a i play tennis i've played my whole life but also with who i work with and then also the endurance athletes so um, broadly, I mean, I think just drinking water is, is kind of a, I mean, of course water is good and, and during, during your day you want to of course drink water, but during exercise when you're, when you're sweating a lot, I think it's a mistake to drink water, generally speaking. Now, of course there's context, so, uh, someone could argue, you know, the, the finer points, but generally speaking, you, it's, it's been very well established that you absorb, uh, a fluid better when there's some sodium and some glucose in there. So to hydrate properly, one could then say, oh, well, you, you know, water is not going to do it and you actually need to 
to uh, take something with sodium glucose in it, depending, of course, on how long you're exercising for, how uh, the environmental conditions, and, and how heavy a sweat of a sweater you are. But again, if we, just to take a hypothetical example, if we think about a, a tennis player playing a two and a half to three hour match of practice, or if we take, think about like a triathlete doing a maybe an Olympic distance triathlon, that that length of time you're gonna you're gonna start getting into a fluid deficit if you're not hydrating properly. Uh, if you're going out for an easy jog or easy run or something or a or, or ride. Um, certainly water is fine, but when we're, when you're really pushing it, uh, to, to, rehydrate properly and to stay on top of it, um, you want to hydrate optimally. And again, I just, so, so when I see, I, I even see pro tennis players at the, at very high levels, uh, people even with histories of cramping, they're just drinking, I see them drinking water on the court and you can see it, you know, they crack, cracking a new bottle of water and I just kind of slap my forehead. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um. Yeah, so I guess that that's not not to beat the dead horse there, but I think that's that's probably my biggest uh, kind of pet peeve uh, when it comes to that stuff. Uh, just and, I, and just to give some numbers to it, um, uh, the, the sweat sweat rates can can range um, a huge range depending on the temperature, the you know the, how acclimated someone is, and things like that. But in tennis players, again, for example, generally um, th- those ranges reported between two and three point four liters per hour of sweat. Of wow. Sweat. Yeah, which is on the high side, but a high level athlete is is. I mean, you can see him if if someone if anyone watches tennis, you know, someone like a Rafael Nadal just dripping water when he's standing there. Um, so, but even on the lower side, you know, one and a half to to three liters of water and or excuse me of sweat an hour, um, we can only absorb comfortably about one to maybe one point five tops uh, liters per hour. Hmm. So if if someone's sweating three liters an hour and they can and they're drinking one to one and a half. Um, comfortably then you know obviously there's there's going to be a rub there and there, there's going to be a, a compounding fluid deficit after with each hour so you want to absorb the, the the fluid you are taking in as as you know um, efficiently as possible and to do that requires sodium and and you know some solute so generally sodium though and, and, and glucose Jeff, I had a, a question kind of on this topic is, you know, as these athletes are sweating, they're obviously sweating out, you know, a lot of the, the sodium and the electrolytes. And so then people who kind of, you know, just water load, um, would they actually be kind of decreasing the, the concentration in their blood of what those electrolytes are? Because now you're, you've kind of sweated a lot of them out. And if you're not replacing those, you're replacing them with just fluid. Would you actually be kind of contributing to that possibility of cramping by diluting out what's ever actually in there from that fluid balance perspective or is that um, um not I, something to consider yeah i i think um well so a couple of things uh, i don't know if i can give you an, an exact answer but basically we, we know this sweat is hypotonic so it's actually not as concentrated um so if, if we just sweat um our our uh, serum sodium concentration will actually increase okay um but then most people drink water or um uh, sports drink that is that contains less sodium. So there, there's a there's kind of a dynamic balance going on there. As far as the cramping, it definitely you know there seems to be cramping is a kind of a contentious issue. There seems to be a few. It's not completely understood. There's definitely a brain element to it. Um, it definitely seems to be that that uh, saltier sweaters are more likely to cramp. Hmm. And so in, in those people, sweat uh, uh, salt loading or he- higher salt intakes can seem to delay and reduce cramping. But there are certainly people. I think there's a again. There's there's definitely a, a brain element to it, um, and I say that for a couple of reasons. But one, pe- people can cramp right soon into uh, competition, even muscle cramps. So there's there's definitely like nerves, um, you know, going on. 
Um, also, um, sometimes when people cramp, like the, the classic remedy is like pickle juice or mustard packets, mm-hmm. and people will feel better quickly. Now, they'll feel better uh, quicker than, than can possibly be absorbed. So you know it's actually more of a direct uh, hmm. uh, mouth-to-brain connection instead of the actual, um, it's not like the, the mustard pack or the pickle juice is going to get absorbed properly enough to get to the muscles and to, to ease the cramp. So um, there's a lot of factors to it, but um, you know, generally speaking, so it seems like uh, you can kind of group people into uh, saltier sweater, sweaters and less salty sweaters. And that can, the, the, the crude way is to, if someone's wearing a black shirt, do they get salt rings or, or don't they? Hmm. Um, in that case, you want you know it, it's it's prudent to to provide some extra salt. Um, now, there's also a degree of uh, acclimation or actually acclimatization that th- those words get used interchangeably. But um, acclimation, or I should say, start with acc- acclimatization with a Z is more relates to the seasonal changes that occur. So if there's like a, a a randomly hot day in the spring, people don't you know maybe aren't used to it and they they might not feel adapt uh, feel so well. Uh, whereas, like acclimation is more, it, c- it can relate to like laboratory um, when, when you uh, getting someone used to it o- almost artificially. Um, so there's a degree of there though. So even actually after a couple a day or two, there's changes in your body. So this acc- uh, acclimatization happens where people sweat earlier, they sweat less salty. Um, the so th- there's a lot of your body adapts really nicely to be a quote better sweater, uh, for lack of a better term. So um, so many there's so many moving parts in there. That uh, I guess I've kind of meandered away from your question, Brad. But uh, there's just there's a lot of moving parts there. Did I kind of address? Uh... Yeah, no, I think that was perfect. Just because that was um, I use that example because that's one of the things that I have um, read, you know, kind of out in the the interweb, so to speak. That obviously misses the whole point that sweat is hypotonic. So I I thought yeah. that was a great you know great explanation of kind of walking people through that process and um, what really kind of regulates cramping and, and fluid balance. So that was great. Thank you. Yeah. And on a real biased question towards my own performance, haha, since we're on the podcast, um, <clears throat> I have noticed that, oh man, going back <clears throat> probably at least 10 years now, so I keep notes on all my training and stuff, and whenever I've been training outside in the, the garage, probably for like the last six years, seven years, in Minnesota where I live, all of a sudden we can get pretty big changes from, oh, it's kind of cold out to, oh my gosh, it's like super hot and humid within a short period of time. And I've noticed whenever that first happens in spring, like my performance just gets crushed for like one yeah. to two weeks. Yeah. Um, obviously, that's probably just because I'm not used to the heat and the humidity and things of that nature. Is there anything you can do to prevent that? I mean, would I be wise to maybe increase sodium or fluid intake during those times since my body is just not quite adapted to it? Or do I just kind of have to do the best I can and, and wait for it to adapt a little bit more. Yeah. So that's, that's a good observation and, and definitely, um, so, so that the, the adaptation process really takes ideally about two weeks. Yeah, um, that's, <coughs> anecdotally, that's what I've noticed too. It's uh, about two yeah. weeks. Yeah. So, so, um, uh, you could, well, actually spending time in the heat. So there, the army does, has like heat, uh, acclimation protocols. So spending mm. about, um, uh, and whether exercise or even non-exercising, but spending about a, up to like maybe a hundred minutes a day in the heat, um, in so like a sauna or something like that, will will make these changes. And actually, it seems it's something I'm looking into more and more lately. And, and it seems like it could be a, a real performance benefit. Um, so um, where was it? Uh, so so like I could go in the sauna ahead of time, maybe. To yeah, try if, to if you give yeah, my body if, used like, to it before that. Like, 
if let's say you had a, a competition or something, you know, whether it's a CrossFit competition or power, any, anything where where you need to really perform um, leading up to that, and, and maybe it's that time of year where it's it's alternating, <coughs> excuse me, hot and, and colder days. Um, you could actually uh, kind of pre pre uh, you know acclimate yourself. Um, or if you were, let's say you were traveling to Florida from Minnesota in the, in the middle of winter for a, you know, a triathlon or for, for anything, you know, where you needed to perform. So spending, increasing in time in, in, <clears throat> yeah, excuse me, at heat or in heat, um, will actually be beneficial to start getting those, those changes going. Um, as far as like, would sodium loading help, um, something like that? I, I don't know. Actually, maybe it could a little bit. Um, actually, yeah, I would say it probably could, um, and I guess to, to take a step back, sodium loading. So th- there's certain, there's a couple of drinks uh, that are popular. Uh, uh, like one is called the Right Stuff, and, and uh, there's another one that are basically si- very similar called uh, by Scratch. Called it has hyperhydration, and Osmo has preload. Effectively, what what you can do, most people are, are uh, think about carb loading. Well, you can actually kind of s- uh, salt load or hyperhydrate um, uh, in, in a, acutely. So. It's taking in these, a very concentrated sodium solution in, in a fluid, and, and uh, it allows you to increase your plasma volume beyond what it would be normally from hmm. resting. So if you, so so I think actually what I was going to mention to Brad's question earlier, some people say, okay, I'm just going to get really hydrated. Like this is oh that, that and that's another kind of thing that gets <laughs> me like it's a myth. So like okay, I, it's hot. I got to drink. I got to get really hydrated. So I'm going to drink like extra water. But right before kid- I go exercise, right. Well, yeah, that, and, and, but, <laughs> but your kidneys are, are really good about balancing that out. So if you just drink a ton mm-hmm. of water, you're just going to pee it out and still be back to effectively baseline, right? So, but what you can do is actually kind of salt load using these, you know, certain type of like, I guess you'd say buffered sodium solution, I think would be an appropriate name for that. Um, and, and you can increase your plasma volume. Now, the benefit to that is then you have, you, you can, um, if well, we can think about what happens when your plasma volume decreases. So if you were if you lose five percent of your body weight during from sweating during the long, let's say you're you know cycling or you know exercising, that's very that's not uncommon to to lose up to five percent of the body of your body weight. So um, uh, that and for a two hundred pound person, of course, that's, uh, that's about ten lot. pounds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so uh, your blood volume, some of that fluid loss comes from your your. Uh, from your blood, right? You sweat, and then your blood volume goes down. When your blood volume goes down, um, your heart rate has to go up to get the uh, the, the uh, oxygen to the muscles. There's also this this uh, fight between this, your skin to to get the blood to the skin to um, you know lead to sweating, and versus getting the blood to their muscles. So there's all kind of problems, all kinds of problems that happen when your blood volume decreases. So thinking back then, if we hyperhydrate, we can increase our blood volume. It kind of makes more, I guess, more blood to go around for that's. Maybe not, not. I shouldn't maybe say yeah, that, but, but you know what I'm saying. So you kind of yeah, systemic you filling pressure. You right? can so you can increase your plasma volume. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So that that would probably be better than not doing that. But I think a better step could actually be to spend some time in the heat, uh, in a sauna even, or or if you could exercise by by importing a heater into your garage or something, um, <laughs> and you will get those favorable benefits um, that would could give you an, an, an edge on your competition. Yeah, I actually uh, I have a friend who works with. Um, a lot of cycling athletes and he has they go down and they race in california in the heat and he has them do like a a two or three week sauna you know acclimation or acclimatization protocol and when they go down there the people who do that perform way better than the people Mm -hmm. who don't so it's interesting that that's actually being used right now in professional athletes and yeah uh, Do, do they exercise in the sauna or just sit 
Um, no, they just they just sit in the sauna and get used okay. to the heat. It'd be interesting to watch them exercise in the sauna, though. That would probably be even be better. <laughs> yeah, it'd probably be dangerous, but I mean, you have to. <laughs> probably, but, but I know that's the point of science, arms, right? We just do bad, <laughs> dangerous experiments, and then we'll that's, just learn from it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know the army does that, though, and I, I've, uh, you know, it's part of well, part of their research anyway. Done done that, and it, it really is effective. Yeah, I think that's actually a really good practical tip for people. So if they're you know, in maybe a colder climate and they have to compete, whether a games athlete or endurance or whatever sport, that, you know, testing out the use of a sauna, even locally, even just resting, uh, may be a good strategy. And one thing I've noticed with myself, and this may explain it, is that when I test sauna stuff in the winter, man, it just seems to crush me. Like mentally, I, I feel pretty good. My you know heart rate goes up, but I don't feel too bad in there. But the next day, if I look at recovery metrics or heart rate variability or things of that nature, it seems to be more stressful to my body. So now I'm going to, and when I think back on it, I've only done that in the winter. So now yeah. I'm going to try to you know, test it out in the summer, see if there's any difference. So it may be yeah. something to, I've often wondered about how far you can go on both ends of the spectrum, right? So I'm lifting in a garage that's, you know, 17, 20 degrees. Mm. How well can I train my body? to be good lifting there versus now I need to do the opposite, right? So I'm trained in a hot environment. Can I expand both ends of the spectrum, right? Can, or do I kind of have to, to pick sort of weighting towards one or the other, right? So sort of like, can you be a really good aerobic athlete and a really good anaerobic athlete, or do you kind of have to settle for something towards the middle? Yeah, no, that's a lot of good points. I'd be curious to see how, how you how you find it in the summer. Um, but, uh, it, it is, I, I think it's, you know, another very recent paper showed uh, cross acclimation between heat and hypoxia. So mm. heat, heat, um, you know, spending time in, in heat improves. Um, then they basically had a group spend time in, in heat and then another, uh, at, at high altitude or simulated altitude, and then did a, a cycling test at altitude. And the, the heat, the group in heat did almost, almost as well as, as the group spending at altitude, ba- basically the same. Uh, and of course the placebo, you know, the control group didn't, uh, did terribly at altitude, um, you know, without the, the, the training there, but the heat, so that's basically the, the, the heat shock protein response, uh, can be similar. So, so kind of, um, a cross acclimation between environmental stressors is not well understood, but it's, it's definitely a, a thing that happens. So there's, I think there's some really interesting, uh, stuff, stuff here. No, that's awesome. I know um, my friend Dr. Rhonda Patrick's talked a lot about uh, heat from saunas oh, and right. yeah. heat shock proteins, and it helped uh, preventing atrophy. So if you've got, so people are listening, if they have some type of injury, you know, the heat stress may help decrease the rate of you know, muscle loss, possibly strength, and things of that nature too. So, yeah, it's 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 really fascinating to me. Very cool. Uh, a couple more questions on hydration. We'll shift topics a little bit. So for people who are listening, how would they know how they should hydrate? Is there like um, a cutoff in terms of the length of the training is, you know, only about an hour, you know, they're at kind of room temperature versus I'm going to go out and, you know, hammer it for two hours and it's, you know, hot and humid. Um, how do they, any sort of yeah, uh, okay, words of yeah. wisdom there? Sure. A couple of thoughts. Um, well, one is, is so our, our sweating response 
is different depending on the humidity uh, or the effectiveness of sweating, right? So if it's hot and humid, that's the least effective time, or you know, our, our body is least efficient uh, at 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 sweating. So we we lose heat um, from conduction and convection and radiation and then evaporation. So during exercise, most of it comes from evaporation. So that means, uh, of course, that the sweat. If, if the sweat falls off your skin, it doesn't cool you. It's the, it's, the sweat has to evaporate. So if it's a dry day, it's a hot and dry day, that evaporation is going to be efficient, where if it's a hot and humid day, there's the, the concentration gradient is, is not great. And so a lot of that sweat that might just fall off our skin and doesn't, uh, like does, doesn't cool us. So um, there's, there's that to consider. Um, as far as um, hydration... Yeah, I, I, you know, as, as far as the time lengths, yeah, an hour, it should, shouldn't be too, you know, probably don't need to drink a whole lot or just drinking to thirst. Um, I think an, an interesting thing, people, uh, I've seen, I've heard both sides of this, that, that, that to look at urine color. And I think urine color is a crude marker. Um, but what it, what it seems like from, and what I've seen in, in the research is that the first, the first, the color of your first morning urine stream is a pretty good indicator of your previous 24 hour hydration. Hmm. But, but looking at it simply at a given time in the day, can be deceptive. So, and what I mean by that is, like, for example, if if we use to that five percent dehydration example for a two hundred pound guy um, after you know a, a marathon or whatever, um, you, you know the person is clearly dehydrated. Uh, let's say then he thinks to drink a gallon of water. Well, his urine is going to turn clear probably pretty quickly, but he's not going to be fully re- rehydrated. So that that's a case where it can be deceptive. So if you you know if you drink too much water and after um, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, pounding a, a liter or a gallon of water is just going to, so a lot of that will go right through you. Um, also, I guess on that note, it's worth mentioning that uh, re- rehydrating, um, if you're just drinking water, you need to drink about 150% of what you've lost during the exercise. But if you have the sodium in there, like we mentioned earlier, um, you actually can, can, you know, you don't need to drink as much to get back back to even. Um, does that make sense? I guess I'm, I'm, I know I'm kind of jumping around here. Yeah, you no. get me excited talking about all this stuff. No, I, th- no <laughs> I think that's good because everyone in the fitness world in general wants to go from one extreme to the next, you know, so I can just picture people, you know, salting the crap out of all their food to get through their, you know, half hour <laughs> training oh, yeah, session yeah, yeah, yeah. or so whatever. Yeah, not necessary. So <laughs> another, another my what... plasma volume, bro. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, another, another, uh, kind of, uh, I guess, uh, approach to, estimating your hydration status is so the, these uh, army researchers they, they uh, created something called what wut is is my hydration status so there, you look at weight urine and thirst and so mm-hmm. uh your body weight if it changes more than one percent day to day so you should measure your, your weight each morning and if it changes more than one percent then that's an indication of dehydration um your urine color like i said the first stream uh you can look at the color um so there's there's that, and then also thirst. So the absence absence of thirst does not indicate uh, an absence of dehydration, but the presence of thirst is an indication of dehydration and the need to drink. Right. So you can look at those three those three factors, and and if one of those factors is is kind of ticked, then okay, maybe you know you're dehydrated. But if two of them you're probably dehydrated, and if all three are kind of ticked off, then then you're most likely dehydrated. So uh, weight again one one percent less of a body weight change from day to day. Urine uh, 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 color in the morning from your first stream, and then thirst, like how thirsty you are in the morning, is a kind of a good. That's kind of a sound approach, uh, a low tech approach. Yeah. So go ahead, Brad. I was going to ask you a a very low tech um, pop fitness culture question: Is 
Um, you know, a lot of times we see people carrying around gallons of water to drink, you know, as much water as they can throughout the day. Um, yeah. Can you kind of talk a little bit about the uh, the trend of just carrying around tons of water and drinking, you know, a couple gallons of water a day, and if there's really any benefit to that or not? Yeah, like they're getting I mean, ready to cross the freaking Sahara, yeah. and they're just driving to the mall. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like I don't want to carry around eight pounds of water all day. My God, freaking camel to follow you around. <laughs> yeah, I, honestly, I I never suggest that. I never. Uh, you know, I don't see much benefit to that. I mean, of course, there's certainly some people that, you know, say, oh, I just forget to drink and they don't really drink anything all day. So in those cases, maybe carrying a bottle is maybe a good idea, like a cig or something small. As far as the people that carry around like jugs, I mean, I don't see the benefit. I think our thirst, drinking to thirst is, is really good. I, I, generally speaking, unless we screw it up with extreme exercise or there's, you know, there's certainly factors that can affect it. Also, as you get older, your thirst sensation decreases so, uh, you know, maybe old, older than 65, they might kind of forget to drink as often or they might not be as sensitive to that. But generally speaking, if, if we're talking about, uh, you know, teenagers to, to maybe 50 or 60 years old, your, your thirst is pretty darn good at regulating things. And like I said, if you drink, if you just force yourself to drink that giant gallon of water, you're just going to pee. It's going to turn clear and it's just going to go right through you. I don't really see a utility of it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, is that, that's kind of, I'm sure that's what you were thinking along those lines. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I even I got an article. I got asked to write for a popular magazine recently asking all about hydration, not during exercise, just, you know, standard simple question of, you know, how much water do you need to drink per day? And you would think that an easy question like that would have a rather easy <laughs> answer. And as you guys both know, it's it's a debacle. I mean, there was stuff like... <laughs> all across the board and then if you think about it and you even complicate it more if you look at like fascia right so sort of like fancy connective tissue in the body you know that's actually mostly water so i've often wondered about people who just sit at their desk all day and don't move and drink all this water it's like well is it getting into the fascia and some of the other tissue a lot of that is you know kind of hydraulic related via movement and things of that nature are they really benefiting themselves or not in an extreme environment? They're not really exercising or things of that nature. So it's, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I just generally agree with you guys. I just tell clients, if you're not exercising in extreme heat, you know, drink to thirst. If you want to run an experiment and sit at your desk all day, drink more water, see how you feel. And then I tell them to you know, drink more water and then just get up and move around a little more. See if you feel better and see if you end up going to the bathroom less. Um, and yeah. just, you know, kind of find what is the, the best point. But I think carrying a, a gallon of water around with you all day in a standard temperature-controlled environment seems pretty extreme to me. I, I completely agree. Great. Did you have any other hydration questions there, Dr. Brad? No, I think uh, I think I just learned more about hydration in the last... 20 minutes and i've learned in the last 20 years so that was uh, that was awesome that. <laughs> well i i doubt that but thank you i'm glad that hopefully that can shed some light on on some things yeah yeah the last question for someone who is in let's say more of an extreme environment now let's say they're going to be doing crossfit games so they're going to be doing exercise outside potentially in the heat potentially they're not uh used to that type of environment is there sort of a general rule of thumb that you would give them um yeah i mean i, I would definitely that's a good question i think it depends on on like 
the let's say the schedule of the day, how many how, how long they would have in between events. I mean, if, sure. th- those are typically I think shorter, kind of, but higher intensity, of course. Yep. Um, I think uh, generally I might say, oh, just put a pinch of salt in your water um, to people, or you know, salt your food liberally. Maybe have some miso soup or something that that kind of stuff. And that that's kind of the really again low tech approach. Um, if it was going to be really hot for someone and um, certain females uh, at certain times of the month, which we can get into, uh, I would probably suggest like using something like the right stuff, um, uh, like a, a hyperhydration kind of thing. If if someone's really unacclimated. Oh, one one other kind of just quick story. Uh, a couple months ago, I, I work with a, a triathlete. Uh, she's a an age group triathlete. Um, so and not a professional, but you know she's a very high level. And she lives in Chicago, and she was competing in Sarasota, Florida. Um, and so of course going in the winter from Chicago to Florida, that's going to be a problem. So, but she did in fact, um, you know, all the stuff we talked about, she did some sauna use for a while leading up to that, uh, did, you know, the right amount of sodium in her drinks, uh, appropriate for her. And, and she actually ended up winning, uh, her group. So, you know, so it's, it's not, uh, you know, it's nice to see that, you know, when it actually works, uh, it's, it's, it's not just crazy. A lot of times we we get so theoretical with this stuff, but actually it really can can have some good benefits with people. Yeah, and I always like to look at the the research and kind of take the opposite approach as to not so much what can acutely increase your performance in terms of a percentage, because most things in that category are pretty small, but taking care of the bigger things first of looking at what things could potentially kill your performance by the largest percentage. Right? Yeah. If you look at that, you know, obviously sleep, nutrition, and hydration, you can make a pretty darn good argument that hydration may even be number one, you know, because if, like you said, if you've got a large loss of fluid and electrolytes, not only could you, one, potentially die, um, <laughs> two, it's going to have a severe impact upon your performance. And then the nice part, too, as you have mentioned, too, with the great tips is it's very actionable. You know, it's something that's, for the most part, directly under your control. There's a few things that are not, but, you know, definitely things that you can do. They're not super crazy. You don't need to sleep in a hyperbaric chamber or anything nuts. Yeah. You know, rather simple stuff. But as you mentioned, too, with some even professional athletes, it's amazing how often that, that those things that are almost too basic just get lost a lot of times. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I guess, oh, okay, one one last thing <clears throat> uh, worth mentioning drinking the thirst like we've talked about is is helpful um interestingly the, the research like like when people drink to thirst how much of that fluid losses does it replace i mean a lot of research shows like 90 to 98 percent of fluid losses uh i have seen though as low as 27 percent of fluid losses replaced mm. with drinking to thirst so there is a real range and i'm, I'm going to guess that could vary on the sport the the time domains of, of when you have a chance to drink um you know the temperature and all that other stuff so definitely with, with as with everything you know ex- experiment and, and see um you know see what works for you great and you had mentioned relation to hydration and specifically female athletes and related to that time of the month. Do you want to explain yeah. a little bit more on that and kind of what Absolutely. you talked about yeah. when we're at dinner, some fascinating research looking at uh, where female athletes may be related to their cycle and even possible yeah. implications for training and other things? Yeah, so I'll, I'll give, I guess I'll give a, a, a broad overview first of, uh, you know, there's definitely gender differences in things that, that are not well fully understood. Um, even even some things like caffeine, there's gender differences reported yeah. in use. So right, but but women are ge- historically understudied, and then there's so many issues um, um, metho- meth- uh, with the methods um, 
in these studies that we could talk about it in a little bit, but I'll get into basically what happens. Um, I think it's most probably guys, most guys don't know, uh, know about this stuff. And, you know, um, so generally if we, if we talk about a 28 day cycle, so we can broadly think of it into the, the front half and the back half and in the middle there's ovulation. So the, the, the key things relevant to, uh, you know, as a, as a trainer or a, a dietitian or nutritionist, whatever you're, if you're working with a female athlete, you kind of, you want to have an idea of what's going on. So a few things that are, are noteworthy, um, again, now actually we're going to assume let's for this discussion right now that everyone's on a normal 28 day cycle. Now that there's a lot of variation in there, which we can get into, but generally let's start with a textbook, uh, kind of, uh, look at what's going on. And if, if, if people are more visual learners, if you Google, uh, do like a Google image search for, for, you know, menstrual cycle or something, you'll see, you know, a, a ton of, uh, pictures that, that kind of describe what I'm talking about. But if we look at, uh, there's two main hormones that we think about that change through the month and that's estrogen and progesterone or estradiol and progesterone. Um, if you think about day one is the start uh, of a period, um, what happens is, is around day nine or so, um, estrogen starts coming up and that peaks just before ovulation. So around day, let's say 13 and then, uh, ovulation occurs and then estrogen dips back down. And then in the back half of the month or, or the luteal phase, uh, progesterone comes up and then estrogen comes back up again, but not quite as high as it was around days 10 or 11 or 12. Okay. So, uh, also there's, there's a couple other luteinizing hormone, uh, peaks, uh, at ovulation and then follicle stimulating hormone comes up, uh, 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 around ovulation too. So broadly, again, we can think of the first, um, let's say the first week, both hormones are down. And then that second week around, like I said, days 9 through 13, estrogen comes up. Ovulation is about fo- day 14. Estrogen comes back down. And then day, then in the back half, uh, progesterone and estrogen come back up, which is the mo- the, the, their probably peak around days, let's say, 19 through 24. Okay. Also, so we'll come back to the implications of that. The other noteworthy thing uh, is that body temperature increases at ovulation. So it's it's maybe a half to a whole degree Celsius. Um, it's a it's a small but significant increase in basal body temperature at ovulation. That comes up and that stays up for about seven to twelve days, uh, and then it comes back down. Okay, so so there's a even if we just think about body temperature, that that can tell us a lot of things, right? That in, as far as implications for exercise, um, that one will p- post exercise or. or uh, intra-exercise cooling becomes more important because the the uh, like the onset of sweating, all all the the kind of the thermal regulatory mechanisms get shifted up. Okay, so so, um, so it's kind of like you shifted your baseline up to start from. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah, I think that's that's a good way to think of it. Now, um, estrogen has a lot of beneficial effects uh, on the body, so it promo- it promotes um, insulin sensitivity, decreases muscle damage uh, and inflammation. It's invo- like it does a lot of things. Um, and then progesterone, which is becomes dominant in the back half or the luteal phase, that's kind of the opposite in a lot of ways. So increases insulin resistance, um, hunger, uh, increase the body temperature increases, um, metabolic rate increases. There's, there's a lot of things. Um, and maybe I should take a, a quick sidebar here. So much of the research on this stuff is contradictory. Some shows no effects. Some shows opposite effects. I have, uh, I, I, in, in my head, I kind of, I made this giant Excel sheet that separates each phase, every kind of five days, and, and every category, performance or physio- physiology-related thing I could think of. And as I read studies, I would kind of 
fill in the boxes. And a lot of it, it's allowed me to get a really good picture of what's going on. But there's some times where, like, um, carb usage, like during the mid-luteal phase, so that's days like 20 through 24, increased use of glycogen or not. Like, that's my note. Like, it's, some <laughs> studies will say increased use of glycogen, and then some studies say decreased use of glycogen, right? So there's so much, um, there's so much difference. There's so, much, uh, so many moving parts going on. It seems like the studies reporting better performance in the luteal phase had a higher estrogen to progesterone ratio. So that ratio, like I said, they both come up in the back half of the month, uh, but the ratio of them can actually affect things. So again, that, that's kind of like one, one probably the, one of the biggest reasons why we see differing effects in, in the research. Um, but to try to bring this back to more practical, uh, we know, again, the body temperature has increased. The other big thing that seems pretty clear is that the plasma volume changes. Okay, so um, the the, pla- um, the there's I believe it's, uh, the there, there could be a difference of like eight to ten percent in in base, base uh, like a baseline plasma volume wow. at different. That's a pretty times. big difference. Yeah, that's a substantial difference. Yeah, 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 huge. So um, uh, where was I? I was actually had a, a note on here somewhere, but uh, that's okay. So yeah, so so that's that's huge. So now. Practically speaking, uh, during the, the mid-luteal phase, days 20 through 24, seem to be where uh, the biggest kind of, uh, uh, you're more likely to cramp, uh, the, so the, the plasma volume is down. It's actually harder to increase plasma volume. So you actually need to, the losses, the fluid losses increase, and this, this is because of how estrogen and progesterone uh, interact with um, vasopressin and like some of these other, the, the hormones that, that uh Regulate homeostasis and yeah, the kidney hemodynamics exactly. So that 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 uh, kind of five or five days or so, like days nineteen through twenty four, let's say, or twenty through twenty four, um, that's that's the most probably one of the challenge, most challenging times. Um, the the again, it's harder to increase plasma volume, and and uh, so you need uh, to increase essentially fluid, water, and salt. So that kind of salt loading will really become an, will really become handy during that, that, uh, that time. Things like heart rate, at, 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 a, at a given workload, your heart rate is increased 6 to 10 beats per minute at, at an equivalent workload wow. during that phase. So again, that's, that's, because of, yeah, that's because of the lower plasma volume. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, so um, uh, um, what else was I going to say? So, so yeah, so the broadest thing I would, uh, I, I, like I said, I key in on this time, that mid-luteal phase, People and, and, and women a lot of times will find that their salt cravings will increase or, you know, their body does kind of naturally, uh, you know, kind of guide you with that stuff. But as far as we're talking about performance, um, also protein catabolism is increased. So basically, it, you know, uh, as far as overall performance, again, it, it, it can, it's hard to say that there's a best time because world records and gold medals have been won at all times of the month. Um, but I would say for extended endurance events, this is where that stuff will become more critical when there's a lot of sweating. Uh, you know, for for long duration, so triathlon and that kind of thing. During that days nineteen through twenty four, uh, protein needs increased because of the greater catabolism, and like I said, the the fluid needs increase, uh, and and sodium needs will increase. Um, uh, what else was I going to say? Uh, oh, and then cooling your body becomes more more uh, more important, right? Because your your basal temperature is up. So if you're maybe a CrossFit Games uh, competitor where you have different events through the, you know, or, you know, through, goes through the day, um, or any kind of tournament, uh, maybe you're playing soccer or tennis or whatever, 
um, cooling your body back down is, is actually uh, can be more critical during that time. Also, there's some, some argument for higher intensity training going in the front half of the month, the follicular phase, and then more of a, a, a lower intensity but longer duration in activity during the back half of the month. Um, you'll find faster time to fatigue at higher intensities, and again, that can relate to the plasma volume and to the um, to the estrogen? body temperature. Well, to the body temperature, right? So that's when they're uh, both okay. up. Um, so, um, so, and the other tricky thing. So, there's so many possible um, issues with why studies don't don't all agree. Um, but and how many studies like the the length of an Ironman triathlon could be you know 10 to 15 hours for some people. Uh, studies don't last that long. So the the need the differences that show up with like low plasma volume might become more apparent in these longer duration activity. And most studies, you know, might be, a, you know, a cycling time trial or, or you know, something um, that generally an hour or less or maybe two hours or less. Yeah, and most so of them are in lab situations too. So it's, you know, and see them, climate you know, controlled and cranking up the heaters and stuffing them in the sauna and sticking them on a bike, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so there is some, some really interesting research um, actually in that, that drink the right stuff. Uh, or using that drink the right stuff where where uh, during that mid luteal phase that that high sodium drink increased plasma volume before exercise where low sodium doesn't and then the high sodium drink can increase time to exhaustion and also attenuate an increase in in the core body temperature so there is some real utility in that and it's not that's not just hypothetical there is some good research um, you know supporting that that concept so Jeff I have kind of a question that pertains I think to most of the kind of female population in this circle is, you know, a lot of times when we're working with clients and, um, you know, we're, we're trying to make body composition improvements or, or lose or gain weight, you know, a lot of times women will, you know, weigh themselves three or four times a week and, you know, we'll see people, you know, their body weight fluctuating up quite a bit and down quite a bit. Um, so how can we kind of use some of these things that we see, you know, and changes in in plasma volume and we see all these kind of changes, it's obviously going to have an effect on the number on the scale. So what kind of strategies yeah. can people use in working with, you know, a female clientele to try to get more valid results in terms of body weight changes, you know, because if I were to yeah. measure somebody over a three-week span, there's going to be a huge piece. So how do we kind of fit those yeah. ideas in that context? You know, what are some ideas you have on that? Yeah, that's, I mean, that that's a good question. I think I'll, I'll offer a few thoughts. Um, we, the the retention increases um, like days twenty four through twenty eight the fluid retention and and like ten through thirteen um, so you know if it's a couple pounds I, you know I, I think one one strategy which maybe the client wouldn't want to hear is just like don't let's not worry about a couple pounds because mm-hmm. let's just keep, you know, um, so that that's not a great answer as far as like programming and diet um, in, in a you know on an everyday basis it seems that because progesterone can drive insulin resistance. Going on a, a slightly lower carb diet uh, in that back half of the month uh, is is prudent. Um, if the athlete needs to um, exercise at high intensities, then then making sure to take uh, like the carb during exercise. So, um, but but as far as a daily diet during that back half of the month, a slightly lower carb. Um, also, there, there's a couple of really interesting studies. They're not um, they're kind of in like isolated like leg extension things or something like that. But there's at least two that I know of that have compared training. Every third day throughout the whole month to every other day in the front half of the month, and then once a week in the back half of the month, and the every um, and the split like every other day in the front half and once a week in the back half. Actually, after like I think two months, they they end up doing better than the group training every third day throughout the whole month. So that's another approach to where 
basically that kind of week of days 19 through 24 or so, you could actually take off from training or, or, or do more technical work. Maybe if, if, if it's uh, someone working on their weightlifting, you know, maybe it's, again, more technical instruction or uh, whatever the sport is, either a recovery week and or a technical week, and then drive harder on the other weeks, um, that's another good approach. And that way you can keep on the lower carbohydrate diet because your workout intensity is, is a little bit lower. Um, and so that might manage things in a bigger picture sense. I know that doesn't, I mean, you originally asked about the day-to-day kind of uh, fluid changes, but um, I think those kind of things, um, you can maximize the, the performance um, and kind of go, go kind of with, with the hormones better by doing, by doing an approach like that. Man, yeah, that's really helpful. I think that's um, some really good practical advice that I'm actually going to probably start using with people because, you know, that's one of those questions as coaches we get a lot is how do we, how do we program around those things? And um, yeah. that's that's been an area I haven't been as well versed in, so that's really helpful. Yeah. So so then 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 the next question is though is like, uh, you know, I, I said initially this is a textbook cycle, uh, so very few people have that. <laughs> so there's all kinds of things. So there's you can have. Um, the fr- the front half of the month that can be variable the the back half of the month is is typically uh, that's less variable in the, in the number of days but the front half of the month you can have a longer follicular phase so one thing I, I'll suggest and there's a number of apps like free apps one is called Glow um, there's another one called like Period Tracker um, the girls every girl should and especially a girl that who's doing this kind of training should know about where they are. And then you can see over time, okay, um, is it always 27 days, 28 days, or maybe I'm at 32 days. So, you know, it's, it's, it's helpful just to know. That doesn't alone tell you, you know, where, where you are in the middle, but you should know, okay, here's day one. And then you can kind of start to see a trend of, of okay, where's day one start each month? And you can see how many days you're going. Then you can also track, and it's a little bit le- less reliable, but for, as a crude, uh, you know, low-tech method, tracking your body, basal body temperature each morning. So that could be like, under your armpit or, or wherever, and these apps, a lot of these apps will give you that. And you'll be able to see, a lot of times, quite clearly, the increase at ovulation. So that can kind of give a, a, a real idea as to when you are actually ovulating because um, there's, there, you can have, um, uh, there can be no, no ovulation. Um, there can be, you know, so, so uh, some women menstruate, menstruate but do not ovulate. Um, so, you know, this just gives a, better, a clearer picture because uh, and then you also have longer cycles and shorter cycles, and some people don't get their cycles. I had one uh, woman recently I'm working with. She's she's a triathlete, you know, uh, again not a professional, but a but a competitive age grouper. Um, she hasn't had a period in a while, and she's she was kind of fine with it, but because it's I guess more convenient. But you know, there, there's <laughs> that opens up a whole nother can. Like so, there's something called the female athlete triad that maybe we, we should just briefly touch on. Um, and uh, so what that, is that, that for people who are just listening yeah, who haven't heard of it? it? Yes, and, and actually, it's it's not it's kind of thought. Um, some people are suggesting it should just be an athlete triad because it's not exclusive to females. But it's it's three things that often go together, and that's low energy availability, uh, menstrual dysfunction, and low bone density. So those can those really can relate. So if if a uh, a girl is not eating enough to support her training needs, um, energy availability relates to or is is um, the energy left over for your body's needs after you discount or you have your energy intake, then you have the amount of, of uh, energy burned during an exercise session. Energy availability refers to the amount of, of calories or energy left over for your, body to, for your body's functions. Okay, so if that is too low for too long, you can stop getting your period because you're, it's you know, your body's smart way of saying, you know, we, we should not, um, we can't get, it, get pregnant right now because there's not enough food around, right? So then you see that, so you see the menstrual dysfunction, 
that can, you know, someone could just stop getting it. There can be longer cycles. So, you know, longer than like 32 or 35 days is, is kind of a red flag. Um, uh, when you stop getting your period, then what that can lead to is low bone density because uh, how estrogen relates to, to bone, uh, bone health and things like that. So, um, so that's definitely something, and, and a lot of times, so so if, if there is menstrual dysfunction, just increasing the the food intake is is the first stop shop. I mean, you should you should definitely talk to a healthcare practitioner, but the first uh, sound approach is actually just um, in eating more or, or exercising less, and so you're increasing the energy availability, and that you know a lot that that can be very very beneficial. Um, sometimes, so uh, physicians often pre- prescribe oral contraceptives. Um, in order to regulate these cycles, but that's really masking the problem. Um, and there, there can be some benefit. There can also be some, some downsides to that. Um, but that can really kind of, like I said, mask, mask the problem. Yeah. I was going to ask about that. So what are your thoughts on females who are on say a hormonal birth control, you know, in essence, they're lack of a better word, maybe bypassing or sort of crushing that whole mechanisms. Then do they, this would probably not, apply per se or is there something else they should do that would be different yeah i mean there's um well there, there's kind of it's not something i've looked into so much but there, there seems it, i've um possibly there might be an increased need for for methyl donors or b vitamins and things like that but even uh, among the oral contraceptives there's there's a huge variation in them so um there's this called something called mon- monophasic pills so that's mm-hmm. estrogen and progesterone in fixed doses but then there's also biphasic and triphasic which attempts to more closely sure. uh, mimic the, the natural cycle. And then even among them, there's uh, some have actually androgenic, uh, some of the progestins. Uh, so progesterone is, is synthesized from pregnenolone, which is derived from cholesterol, like other steroid hormones. But most progester- progestins in, in these pills are synthesized chemically, and actually the structural uh, differences cause progestins and progesterone to impact physiologically, physiological systems differently. So um, a lot of the progestins... In the in the pills have mild androgenic properties uh, compared to you know endogenous progesterone. So there's a whole you know there's there's so many issues that that it brings up. Um, so um, you know as far as we're definitely working with with a healthcare provider. The, the, the newer types uh, have lower doses of the hormones than than maybe some of the older ones did. Um, so th- there's a lot of questions there that need more research and all that, all that kind of stuff. Um, so, uh, if, you know, and also from a performance standpoint, actually there's, there's, um, there's actually possibly some, some performance declines in, in aerobic performance, VO2 max, um, like five to 11% decrease, um, that's reversible on discontinuing the therapy, but, um, uh, anaerobic, anaerobic power actually, uh, it's, it can be decreased. So, hmm. Oh, that's, that's interesting. Um, one sort of a question that's similar to that, um, do you do anything different for females that are on maybe like hormone replacement who are maybe older? I know that's not generally yeah, in, um, in favor for the most part now, but I think not, no, not really. I mean, uh, I only, I worked with I think only a couple people that have, have, you know, kind of been there. Um, but estrogen just generally, if, if, you know, thinking about it though, progesterone is kind of what. I don't want to say causes the, the problems, but as far as like the stuff we're talking about, estrogen is generally leads to the more favorable uh, performance changes. It seems like based on uh, like the late follicular phase when estrogen is up is generally like kind of the better the better uh, stuff happens, and then that when the progesterone is up, um, that's kind of you know 
quote problematic. Of course, it's all meant there for a reason. But um, so if someone was taking estrogen, probably you know I don't think I would really change anything. Okay. So uh, yeah, if you were working with you know somebody who was postmenopausal, would that change you know your approach to their kind of dietary pieces, or do you, would you just kind of use basic normal principles? Yeah, I think that 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 would then wouldn't change. Uh, you know, yeah, quote normal. Um, uh, yeah. I would say pretty kind of normal and in a way it makes it easier. Um, I mean, there's different issues that come up, but I think generally, uh, there's less, it's, it's more stable through the month anyway. Okay. So, um, you know, the idea of postmenopausal women needing really drastic, different approaches to nutrition is not, um, doesn't really hold a whole lot of weight in terms of you need to make massive changes. Yeah. You know, not, not that I've seen, um, and, and not from the kind of the angle that we're, we've been talking about here. I, I don't think. Okay. Uh, you know, yeah, I, I give, that's just a. Oh, go ahead. Oh no, I just it kind of reminded me of an interesting story. So a, a lot of I guess I didn't mention. Uh, um, I have spent five years as a, a college tennis coach coaching uh, girls. So that's maybe what kind of got this in my head. You know, or got me more interested in this because I would see you know the changes and performance changes. And, and really, uh, I learned about most of this stuff after um, or towards the end of that time working with them. But you know, just just uh, from this past year, uh, there was. A tournament and, and there's one girl who's a good player a high, a high level college player she she was playing uh you know tournaments a few days in a row and she's playing she really just cramped this one day like a lot of cramping and and i wasn't really working with her at the time i mean it was kind of in touch but um cramping and then and then uh she played the next day and she was actually fine um i did have her drink i told her when i found out she was cramping i said you know drink some miso soup and, and it's kind of whole, um, high salty things but you know, after the fact, a, a few weeks later, when we were chatting and, and I was kind of explaining some of the stuff to her and her teammates, um, I, I kind of actually guessed. I said, you know, uh, based on uh, her being uh, cramping that one day and then being actually pretty okay the next day, I kind of guessed that that would have been around day, you know, day twenty three, twenty four. So I was, you know, and I, I, so I said, whatever. This was probably two weeks later. I said, did you get your, you know, start your period like, whatever last Monday? And actually, it was. It turned out, yeah, she did. So. Hmm. Uh, you know, uh, um, that, that again, just kind of supported the, the, the theoretical ideas that this, this, um, as soon as, if the hormones dip back down, you're kind of back to normal, but getting, getting enough salt and, and fluid is, is, is a challenge at that time and, and, uh, could potentially lead to more cramping. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, no, that's very cool. So what would you say from looking at just female cycles would be, sort of a recap. So if they want to yeah. periodize their training, do you recommend having more higher intensity work, maybe more towards the beginning? Yeah. And then lighter intensity work, maybe even lower amount of carbohydrates towards the back half? Yeah, that's exactly right. And and, and that's broadly ch- ch- uh, separating front and back half. But the, the, main, the largest effects are really seen on like days 20 through 24. So I think first of all, everyone should track track their 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 cycle so then they know okay here's roughly and even if there's some changes you know broadly where you are then like you said higher intensity training is and again someone could could nitpick this if you find a study generally speaking i think yeah the front half is gonna be a better time for high intensity training the the back half um you're gonna decrease intensity and even if you want to keep training that maybe it's more focusing on the endurance so that's not the time to do like tons of sprint repeats but focus on the long the long duration uh, endurance runs where you're kind of at a lower lower rate and, and you're going to still get some adaptations that can work hard, but um, because of that that um, body temperature goes up and that faster time to fatigue at your higher intensities, 
Um, and again, drinking more salt, drinking more fluid and, and using more salt during that, that mid, mid luteal phase is referred to. And also protein needs in that mid luteal phase are increased. Um, so protein needs are increased, cooling your, do- your body becomes more important. And, um, and actually these, all these effects actually become a bit more pronounced when, when taking the oral contraceptives because the, the hormone levels are higher than, than we naturally find. So the, the effects are, are effect, can be effectively greater. Um, so yeah, that, that would be kind of the, the large best way to, best way to approach it, I think. Oh, that's awesome. Any other questions, Dr. Brad? No, this has been awesome. It's been uh, very educational for me, and it's been great to chat with you and hear a little bit more, you know, about the work that you're doing and um, a lot of the the interesting stuff you've come up with. So thanks a ton for your time, Jeff. It's been great. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much for everything on here. I think that's been very interesting, a little slightly different topics and also very useful. Uh, where can people find out more about you on the uh, worldwide webs there? Oh, sure, yeah. Um, you can come to my website, and that's eatsleep.fit. So www.eatsleep.fit. Um, and you can see you know, what I'm up to, um, that kind of thing. Uh, feel free to reach out. My email address is rd at trifitla.com. So any kind of thoughds, questions, uh, and I'd be curious to hear anyone's experience if they've kind of observed this or, 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 or try any of this and see, you know, if, if there's any noticeable differences or things like that. Um, also, I can, I can maybe send a couple reviews or something and if, if, if there's kind of notes or show notes or anything like that that you want to include um, if people are, are interested in reading more about this stuff. Yeah, if you can yeah, send that them over, be that'd fantastic. be great. We'll definitely include them in the notes. Cool. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. Yeah, awesome. thank you very much, Jeff. Greatly appreciate it. That's uh, very interesting. And thank you for taking time out to be on the show. My pleasure. All, All right. right. Take care, Jeff. Yeah, All right. Thanks, bye. guys. Greatly appreciate it.